All right. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I am back with another guest. Um, if you looked at the YouTube thumbnail, you guessed it. I have Dr. Lane Tipton on to speak with me about uh, Cornelius Van Til's Trinitarian Theology. He just wrote a wonderful new book, of which I'm still in the process of, of reading. He was so kind to me. Uh, sent to send me a uh, PDF of it, and I have my phone read it to me. So I'm I'm still in the process of plowing through some stuff. Uh, but so far, it is an excellent read, and uh, folks can definitely pick that book up right now uh, on Kindle uh, and hardcover. It is $9.99 uh, on Kindle and $34 for hardcover. If you're that kind of guy that likes to smell the the wonderful smell of a brand new book, uh, I know I've um, have a weird uh, obsession with new books. I don't know if uh, any of any of my listeners share that, but um, both of those options are open to you if you so desire to go over to Amazon and pick that book up right now. It's 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 uh, available. Um, but I would like to uh, just share a little bit about my guest, uh, Dr. Lane G. Tipton. He is um, associated with Reformed Forum. He teaches theology there and. Um, there are a lot of a lot of content on the YouTube channel, especially with respect to what we're really interested in on this channel: uh, presuppositionalism, Vantillian uh, apologetic methodology, Reformed theology. Um, and so, I highly recommend you guys check out Reformed Forum. Uh, Dr. Tipton is also a minister in the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and his academic interests include hermeneutics, soteriology, Christology, covenant theology, Trinitarian theology, modern theology, and the integration of biblical and systematic theology. So uh, he has his hands, uh, if we can say his mind, in uh, many different uh, uh, topics. And I'm pretty sure everyone who is listening today will enjoy uh, Dr. Lane Tipton. So without further ado, I'd like to invite him on the screen with me. Uh, Dr. Tipton, how are you doing? I'm doing great, brother. It's a delight to be here. A long time coming. Well, wonderful. Yeah. So just for background, I had invited uh, Lane. Uh, it's all right if I call you Lane, right? Absolutely, brother. Okay. Okay. So we just met like five minutes ago. So we're, we're best buddies, right? So uh, we've emailed, I, though. We've emailed. We've that's emailed. right. That's right. So I had invited um, uh, Lane, Lane. Uh, onto the show a while back, and uh, he was super busy. And so we kind of pushed it off uh, for a long time. But I'm super happy that. Uh, he's been able to make the time and to come on with me uh, tonight. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Um, is there anything you'd like to add about yourself that you think folks might find interesting before we kind of dive into the main um, topic of our discussion? Well, not necessarily interesting, but uh, Reform Forum, where I'm serving in terms of teaching, has a Reformed Academy, uh, is publishing a wide, variety, a wide array of uh, literature right now, and is really starting to, I, I, I think, present a, a wide range of theological material that can assist pastors and elders and interested students. And of course, I just delight to serve at Trinity OPC in Easton. It's it's wonderful. And it's an overflow of, uh, of uh, just a, a love for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which I've had for many, many years. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. No, it is an honor and uh, and a pleasure. What I really appreciate when I was reading a little bit of your description um, is that you have a strong background in academic um, theology. I mean, you, you're in academia, you write at the scholarly level, you published, yet you are a minister, a servant of the church. And um, I think that is a very powerful and very Christ-centered and church-centered thing to do, uh, that you have one foot in academia, the other foot in the church, and 
use, uh, you know, what you've learned, what you've studied to kind of benefit the body of Christ. And I think that's that's where all the action is at. That's what God has called us to do. So I very much appreciate that um, about you. Now, um, I, I think you're going to get a, <laughs> I think you're going to kick out of this. So when people hold to presuppositionalism, they'll call themselves a presuppositionalist or a Vantillian. But I have not heard this before here. This is from Jeff Downs. He says, I'm a Tiptonian. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we, 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 I love Jeff. He's a dear brother. Let's, let's just say we're, 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 um, reformed. We're in the tradition of Gerhardus Voss. We're confessional. We love Vantill and, and uh, insofar as Tipton is 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 helpful in some small way, we'll listen to him. <laughs> we, we, we need to make that go viral, though. A Tiptonian oh. presupposition. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, thank you. That made me laugh when I read it. Uh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff's kind, it. but that's way overstated and out of focus. <laughs> Order awesome. in proportion. Order in proportion. <laughs> that's awesome. So now um, I want to talk about your book, but I have a question that a bunch of people always ask me, and I'm going to use my self-centered greediness to ask this question first before we get into the topic of your book. Now, we all know that as Reformed Christians, um, the, the bedrock, the soil out of our Reformed theology is what is where our apologetic flows from, right? So our apologetic flows from a consistent application of biblical Reformed theology. But I keep getting this question, uh, Lane, is it possible to be a presuppositionalist in any consistent way without being Reformed in our theology? For example, I don't know if you're aware, but there are a lot of Eastern Orthodox Christians claiming to be presuppositionalists. And um, even some Roman Catholics, um, is that inconsistent? If so, why? I, I, I a lot of people ask this question. And I figured you'd probably be the guy to ask since you are well informed with Reformed theology and Vantillian thought. Oh sure. Well, let me try it this way. A couple. Uh, you'll you've probably already know this about me, but I give kind of textured, layered answers. Yes. If if you begin with a kind of uh, broad evangelical biblicist Reformed view that's out there. Uh, represented by uh, the Oliphant frame and others, you could be a, a covenantal presuppositionalist, believe that God is mutable, ignorant, developmental, changes, grows, but somehow we're just presuppositionally committed to God. And, you know, that kind of me and my Bible, mutualist, biblicist approach that can appeal to almost anyone. So, so uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Evangelicals, they can say, well, I'm presuppositionalist. I presuppose God exists. Mm -hmm. But that's just surface level and unhelpful. Sure. Um, so so the, the, the follow-up answer to that is that if, if, you, if you look at Van Til's theology, and I'm not trying to center my book, but if you, if you do read the book, if anyone happens to who's listening to this to read the book, Van Til begins his apologetic with a self-conscious integration of the continental Dutch and English Puritan, or to put it a little more narrowly, old Amsterdam, old Princeton reception of Calvin's Trinitarian theology, which Calvin was trying to refine uh, from Augustine and others. And he presents his apologetic as the fruition and outworking of a uniquely and distinctively Calvinistically reformed doctrine of Trinity. So it's, it's, yes, is it biblical? Yes. But it's biblical as received in terms of the creedal lowercase c Catholic tradition 
And as the reformed tradition, and in Van Til's instance, the integration of the continental Dutch and English Puritan tradition, so that you cannot be presuppositional. And by the way, I prefer that vastly to the more recent mutualist biblicist nomenclature of covenantal. We can talk okay. about that if you decide, sure, if you sure. decide to. But it, the presuppositionalism of Van Til is robustly and staunchly from the outset committed to an autothean Calvinistic doctrine of the ontological trinity mm. and the way that interfaces with the Reformed doctrine of federalism, image of God and covenant. So the long answer is that, uh, the longer answer than the first one, is that if you look at the actual deep structures of Van Til's thought, the Eastern Orthodox um, denial of the ontological trinity as understood in the West, it's, it's denial of the uh, filioque, it's denial mm. of the immutability of God in his revelation with its sure. essence energies distinction. Uh, that precludes them. The Roman Catholic nature-grace dualism of, of Thomas Aquinas, its insistence on the donum superadditum and participation in the essence of God, that precludes mm. the Roman Catholic view from, from Van Til. So the, yeah. the, the short answer is that presuppositionalism, as articulated by Van Til, is an organic an inexorable extension of the, and this is the way I put it in the book. I'm not trying to turn to the book. We don't even have yeah, to no, talk we, about we, the book. We, we're going to get to the book, but, but I'm but, glad that but, you're... But for Van Til, uh, apart from my book, for Van Til, Van Til's theology at its root is a, an ecumenical, synthetic, and constructive expression of the continental Dutch and English Puritan expression of classical reformed trinitarianism and classical federalism reformed federalism okay that integration is what underwrites the presuppositional approach to apologetics so that it's just not possible for mutualists biblicists covenantal types um eastern orthodox types roman catholics bardians dipolar theists um open theists, Socinians, they cannot embrace the presuppositional approach to apologetics because they have not embraced the reformed Trinitarianism and covenantal mm. theology that underwrites it. Yeah. Now, one more uh, kind of uh, question relating to that, um, and then we can switch to the book because I do want to, I do want to talk about Cornelius Van Til's uh, Trinitarian theology because I think sure. it's, it's so much wide ranging application to so many different other areas. But um what about libertarian freedom? Someone who holds to a libertarianly free will position, um, is that in any way inconsistent with, say, a reformed understanding of God and how we relate presuppositional methodology in a way that's consistent with how we understand God and his decrees and things <laughs> like that? I'm so excited you asked this. I, I love stuff like this, brother, by the way. So I love this <laughs> give and take stuff. Let me put it this way. The, 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 the classical expression of libertarian free agency I think has been captured by the Socinians in the 16th century and the open theists in the 20th and 21st century. Their argument is that God, now please understand, please hear this. Their argument is that God cannot in the nature of the case foreknow the acts of moral agents okay. who possess libertarian freedom. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's unknowable. Why? Because the libertarian conception of freedom is that moral free actions free agency is not determined by natural causality or the decree of God. And I have an old professor. He's one of my favorites from Westminster um, in California. The Reformed affirm foreknowledge and foreordination. The Arminians affirm foreordination, deny 
uh, pardon me, uh, affirm for or foreknowledge, deny foreordination, and the Socinians and open theists deny foreordination and foreknowledge. And so the the Calvinists affirm that God foreknows exhaustively and definitely the free actions of moral agents, in part because God is omniscient, and in part because they don't possess libertarian free agency. Hmm. Namely, the idea that free actions are not uh, are not determined by natural causality or um, divine foreordination. Uh, secondly, and this has been fascinating to me, I won't give you names at this point because sure. it's not necessary, sure, but sure. there have been some even within the the ostensible, I'll call it nominal uh, Vantillian tradition, who have published as far back as 2003 up to 2018, this doctrine, that when God is calling out to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3-9, where are you? Hmm. He does not know where they are. Now, this is key, not because they have um, libertarian free agency, but because God, when he relates to creation, either A, assumes to himself a um, distinct and separate second mode of existence that's contingent, temporal, and ignorant, or he generates somehow or takes to himself somehow covenantal properties by which he is ignorant like the creature. So there, there have been even those who claim to be Calvinists who say that God so limits himself in his relation to creation mm. that while creatures don't possess libertarian freedom, God has limited himself in such a way that he's taken to himself the mode of creaturely noesis. Namely, mm. uh, so, some put it this way, God has a covenantal mind that's ignorant that's developmental that doesn't know where adam and eve is genesis 3 9 when he says adam where are you he doesn't know or in uh genesis 22 13 through 18 abraham now i know that you believe me um these um so-called reformed theologians are saying well i didn't know before but abraham now i do i really know that you believe in me uh, but but the irony is this: it's a uh, th this this so-called uh, approach, uh, this uh, uh, second mode of existence or covenantal approach. It's not Socinian in the strict sense of the term because it doesn't affirm uh, libertarian free agency. But it's it's it belongs in the Socinian tradition because due to either voluntary transformation or voluntary self-limitation. God actually doesn't know the future. Now, over mm. against both of those views, the traditional Socinian view, the open theist view, libertarian view, God doesn't know the future. And this newer, I don't know what to call it. Some people even call themselves Vantillians. I'm just going to call it an evangelical, reformed, biblicist view. <laughs> okay. or, or, that, that's the best way I know how to do it. People okay. claim to be reformed, but <clears throat> have a view that's functionally Socinian. Uh, over against those, I wrote an essay, uh, Eli, I don't know if you're even aware of it, but okay. I wrote an essay in the Confessional Presbyterian. It was published about a year ago. I could send you a copy of it if you want me to. Sure, yeah, You absolutely. can post it wherever you want if you want. But Herman Bobbing, uh, who's so useful here, he and Van Til, but I'm going to talk about Bobbing. Bobbing says that the view, this is so beautiful, in his Reformed Dogmatics, says that the view of Genesis 3-9 that God doesn't know where Adam and Eve are, that he's ignorant, is quote-unquote absurd. 
that God might speak in an accommodated way. God might be denominated by categories borrowed from the creature and in space and time, and creaturely qualities might render the way God relates to creation. But even though those creaturely qualities render God's relation to the creation, God remains, and this is key, this is this is Augustine, this is Calvin, this is Westminster Confession, this is Bavink, this is Van Til, this is Voss, this is not the Susanians and not these covenantal types or these evangelical mutualists, but that God remains omniscient and immutable and impassable and simple in his sovereignly willed relation. He's the same apart from that relation as in it. And so when you ask me that question, they're they're really kind of a 1A, 1B, the Socinians and the modified covenantal evangelical mutualist biblicist types on the one side. Okay. And then there's the old school mm-hmm. Augustinian Calvinist reformed on the other side. And the people who belong on that other side, that reformed side, are the likes of Augustine, Calvin, Bovink, Boss, Van Til. And there is, it's so funny you'd asked me this. I'm thrilled you did. But I'm so happy so you're many- answering it in such a long way because this is, this. I you have no idea how often, I just got a question today. I'm like, I'm a Molinist. Can I be a presuppositionalist? I'm thinking, well, Molinist holds a libertarian freedom. I wonder if there's a relation there. So I'm happy you're unpacking this. This is super uh, helpful. I'll just put it this way. The, 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 the tender answer to that is no. <laughs> you know, no, let's talk. Let's get. Let's keep talking. Uh, you can okay. be. A, you, you can. You can be a Molinist, and you can go with uh, Craig and uh, the Socinians and the Open Theists and the okay. Covenantal Mutualist Biblicist types. But there, there is a qualitatively different Augustinian Calvinist Reformed alternative, and um, it's it's really key. So I'm I'm so glad you asked me this, and. I, I don't deal with that as directly in the book, but in that sure. volume uh, or or shorter essay that I told you about, I think it's called, um, how about this? I don't remember my own essay title, but it's <laughs> something like um, um, Bovink and Van Til on anthropomorphism. Okay. Uh, they, they just offer a robust affirmation of, here's the deal. I'll, I'll put it this one last way, brother, and then we'll move sure, on. Sure, sure. The Reformed affirm an unqualified doctrine of omnipotence, omniscience, simplicity, immutability, and impassibility in God's relation to creation, Hmm. as well as apart from God's relation to creation. So it's unqualified. God, whether he's apart from creation or in relation to creation, is unqualifiedly living, immutable, impassable, omniscient, and simple. All other forms of, whether it's Bardianism, whether it's Schleiermacher, whether it is open theism, dipolar theism, covenantal apologetics, or um, um, uh, process theism, all those other views are going to have a dialectical conception where God is immutable apart from creation, mutable in relation. Mm. Simple apart from creation, composite in relation to creation. Um, Eternal apart from creation, temporal in relation to creation. Omniscient apart from creation. Uh, ignorant in relation to creation, um, omnipotent apart from creation, but impotent, relatively speaking, in relation to creation. And pro- probably, I'm not sure this is the, the because it's been burned and pulped and, and hidden, but the best dialectical expression that I've just explained is found in this volume. Um, 
it's it's hard to find anymore. God with us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, God with us. It's it's also, you know, in in a lot of other books, but that's a real good kind of crisp summary mm-hmm. of that dialectical sick at known um qualified doctrine mm-hmm. of immutability and passability and simplicity and uh it's it's a it's it's, it's and there are others. I mean, Frame does it. Charles sure. uh, Clark Clark Pennock does it. Sure, uh, sure. Cobb and Hartshorn. There are a host of others, but that's the more well-known, you know, sure. question mark view. Sure, so. sure. Now, I, I just want to let you know, Lane. I wish I can put you in my pocket, and when I want to talk theology, take you out and start talking. <laughs> uh, listen, I love that when you explain something, the love of the topic shines out in how you explain it, and so you're very engaging to listen to. And I love how you just unpack that. In uh, I'm I'm going to tell folks right now. I I keep getting asked that question. I'm going to make that little segment a separate video, and I'm going to share that Sounds so people great, can hear uh, your, your answer. And it, and it's a joy to do this with you. I really enjoy it. Like I said, it was too long in coming, uh, but I'm glad we're doing it. Well, awesome. Well, hopefully we can be friends in the long run. I would love to just connect with you and pick your brain. I know you're busy, but uh, I think we're instantly friends, brother. We'll just keep developing. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. All right. Well, um, let's talk about your book, um, Cornelius Mantel. Yes, that's what we're here. <laughs> well, 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 my question wasn't related directly to your book. So I want to focus on the book so that people know we're now talking about the book specifically. So um yeah, Jeff again. He's like Eli has become a Tiptonian. I <laughs> the, the name is going to stick, Lane. I, no, 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 we can't let it, brother. We I'm can't get, let it. I need to get a mug with you on it, and then I'm a Tiptonian. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just going to put it this way: the men that I am am talking about who have expounded the biblical text, they must become greater. I must become smaller. That's just, that's how it should be. All right. Well, before I kind of ask you specifically about your book, like more directly, um, why is Van Til someone that people should read today? I mean, he's definitely um, a major player in reform circles, but but why would you say people in general should read Van Til? Uh, what, What value does Van Til have for the Christian world today? And then we'll kind of pivot into the specific topic that you've chosen to write about and kind of unpack with respect to his thought. It dovetails well. Um, and I can tell you've been doing this for a while, brother, because that's just a tremendous question. Uh, authentically, I, I really mean it. Um, l- let me put it this way. I, for the, I'm going to play to some of the sympathies of the people that I think listen to your uh, podcast. Okay. Do you remember that time you first became a Calvinist when you remembered that, that or realized for the first time, God is a, is a sovereign, immutable, all-determining, all-decreeing, loving, covenantal God. And and you thought to yourself, this Calvinism, this Reformed theology that I found is so precious to my soul. Hmm. Well, that's what in large part motivated the pursuit of this study and the expression of Van Til's theology. And let me, and let me put it this way. This, this is a, like an inclusio, Eli, of my book. It's the, it's the, the, the introduction and it's the epilogue. I probably should have called it prologue epilogue, but I didn't get cute enough. It was, you know, <laughs> but, but anyway, here's the point. Van Til offers, and, and I, I hope this is practical to people. Some people will say, when you first hear me, I think a lot of people say that's not practical, but if you listen and keep thinking, sure. it becomes about as practical as anything in the world. But let me let me put it this way for your listeners. Okay. Um, uh, I I interact toward the end of the book uh, with, and I know you didn't ask me about the book, and I know you asked me about Van Til, but they they segue so well. There's a book by um, that was edited 
by uh, Bruce McCormick and Thomas White. I consider McCormick the preeminent BART scholar, okay. and White is one of, but not the preeminent Thomas scholars. I think mm. Emory's probably preeminent. Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth, an unofficial Catholic Protestant dialogue. Okay. At the end of the, at, at the beginning of that volume, which I cite in the epilogue, they say that Thomas and Bart, traditional Thomistic theology, and um, Bardian theology, modern Bardian theology are analogous to um, Shakespeare, Dante and Shakespeare. They dominate the landscape, just as Dante and Shakespeare dominate the landscape of literature. So Thomas and Bart dominate the landscape of viable, contemporary, conservative, orthodox, okay. Trinitarian theologies of the God-world relation and all that it entails. What I argue in the epilogue, and I try rigorously to demonstrate in the book, is that there's a third figure. Okay. He's neither Dante nor Shakespeare. I haven't decided how to uh, transpose that analogy, but in the theological analogy, the third person is Cornelius Van Til. Hmm. And here's what I mean by that. Thomas holds to a view of the creator-creature relation that requires the ontological reproportioning of the creature to participate in the essence of God. White grants it. Emory grants it. Thomas says it. It's quite clear. It's, it's basic if you know standard traditional Roman Catholic theology. Bart, on the other side, says that God, um, and I'm going to use a little different language than Bart uses, but God reproportions himself to the modality of the creature. God limits himself. He becomes his opposite. He becomes finite, temporal, mutable in the Christ event. And so you have these two monumental presentations of the creator-creature relation, but both of them, in Van Til's terminology, are correlativist. The creature participates in the being of God for Aquinas. The creature, uh, God participates in the becoming of the creature for Bart. It's astonishing how similar they are. And McCormick and White note the ecumenical potential for traditional Thomistic and traditional Bardian theology. Standing in sharp contrast to them is Van Til, who says God does not reproportion himself to the categories of the creature in the decree or in creation. We're, we're not talking about incarnation. And the creature is not reproportioned to God. Um, God relates. God, here, here's my way of putting it. God as God without modification relates to the creature as creature without modification in creation and covenant as distinct mm. and separable simultaneous facets of his condescension. Yeah. And what that means, and I'm trying to make this relevant, brother, I promise I'm trying to make it as practical as I can to your listeners. <laughs> no, you're doing great. That, that means this, that, that if you are following Calvin, the Confession, Voss, Bavink, Van Til, Old Princeton, um, Van Til's integration of all of them, you have a distinctively unique, confessionally reformed conception of the creator-creature relation that cannot be reduced to and is antithetical to um, medieval Roman Catholic theology on the one side. Mm -hmm. and modern Bardian theology on the other side. It's a tersum quid. It's a third thing. It's a unique, distinctive, deep structure voice that I call the deeper Protestant conception. So there's mm -hmm. the deeper Protestant conception that stands in antithetical relation 
to the deeper Catholic and the deeper modernist conceptions of Aquinas and okay. his ilk, Barton his ilk. So for your readers, if if you're interested in Van Til, he gives voice to that old-fashioned Calvinist Reformed theology you fell in love with when you understood the five points, mm. covenant theology, and the system of doctrine contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And when you read all those reformers who were saying, we don't agree with the Romanists, and when you read all those 20th century conservative theologians who said, we don't agree with Bart, Van Til gives you the most profound, integrated alternative mm. to both of those uh, differing theological traditions. And excellent, excellent. So I hope it's useful. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much. So Van Til is is still very relevant to us, and I think if if people just know him through his apologetic, I think they should be encouraged to read some of his other things because that reformed theology kind of oozes out of everything that he that he writes and everything that yes. he says. And so um, yes. I would commend that to others who are interested. Now, um, Van Til's Trinitarian theology, what drew you to focus on this element of Van Til's thought? I mean, there's so much uh, that he has contributed to in the realm of theology and apologetic methodology. What caused you to focus on his doctrine of the Trinity? I think I think there are two things. Um, number one is uh, you've shown me your cup on Bonson. And let me just say before all your listeners, I studied under Greg Bonson from around 1990. Yes, until 1995 when he died. I believe it was December 11th. 1995 when he when he passed into glory right. and i have uh, as an apologist i i i categorically disagree with the theonomy categorically reject the the post-millennialism but in terms of his reading of van Til, i think among the second generation van Tillians, head and shoulders above the rest hmm. uh frame olaf and edgar and others um just he really was he, he just stood out yeah uh, but when i studied with bonson um, I would take courses with him, Eli, uh, correspondence courses. And if I would finish with a segment, I'd get one hour with him for Q&A, mm. just, just the two of us, where I'd call him up, landline. This is back in the day. I mean, people are going <laughs> to think TV was still in black and white when I'm telling this story. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, this is way back in the day. We don't even have computers yet. I was taking notes by hand. I'd call him up and I'd talk to him. And I told him, I said, Dr. Bonson, after I'd had him for about like a year or two, I said, hey, Dr. Bonson. And and uh, he was the nicest guy in the world to me. Uh, just just nothing but kind. And he also had an encyclopedic understanding of things. And I couldn't tell if he was lecturing or reading notes because he was just <laughs> that like it's like kind of data. The Star Trek thing is just like. Sure, yeah. Oh, yeah. But but he, I would ask him, I said, Dr. Bonson, I noticed that you talk so often about worldview. And about the way that the Christian worldview accounts for logic and causality and ethics. It, it accounts for abstract universal entities as well as changing and variable patterns in experience. But what I've noticed, Dr. Bonson, is that you don't trace in any sustained way in any of your writings that I've found the relationship between the self-contained ontological trinity, his revelation in covenant, and its implications for worldview apologetics. And he said to me, I don't remember the year. It was somewhere around 1993 before I went to Westminster, California, when I was in Austin, Texas. He said, Lane, you should write a book on that someday. <laughs> should, awesome. he, said, he said, go for it. He said, I haven't. I haven't gotten around to it. It requires a, a special expertise in Trinitarian theology. I've been more focused on method, and I think the worldview is correct. Van Til talks about that, but I've not connected the dots. Mm. Brother, here's what I did. L little little young Lane, you know, and 
1993, 25 years old. I wrote that down. Read up on this exclamation mark. You know, that's, really, <laughs> that's point one. Then point two, I go to Westminster, California. I'm going to abbreviate this story. I study under my two favorite professors, uh, Strimple and Klein, 1A and 1B. And I don't even know who to put first. They are militant Vantillians. Okay. And they, they, they talk about them all the time. And they, they tell me that I should go on to do a PhD. And I, I don't want to do philosophy. I want to do theology. They say, go study under Gaffin. So I come to Westminster, Cal, uh, Westminster, Philly in 1998, still at that time, old Westminster, committed to the old doctrines and everything. Gaffin was still there. And Gaffin told me, I said, he said, Lane, um, what do you want to write on? I said, well, for my dissertation, I said, I'd like to write on ontological and economic facets of Christology and try to trace out the relationship between Trinitarian processions um, the missions of the Trinity and the resurrection of Christ, because you haven't done that. Anyway, he, you know, Dick, he said, oh, that's fair. You, I haven't. But then he said, <laughs> but then he, then he said, but there's one thing you've yet to do. He said, you have yet to write on Van Til's doctrine of the Trinity. Hmm. He said, Dr. Strimple told me that you'd written a paper for him out there. You must write a dissertation on Van Til's doctrine of the Trinity clarify his doctrine of the Trinity, situate it in terms of the tradition, mm. develop its implications for covenant and apologetics. You must do it. It's 75 years overdue. And he would not let me switch. He told me, you know, <laughs> seriously, brother. I mean, Dick is not a forceful man. Dr. Gaffin still alive. He's not a forceful man at all. He was forceful with me. Yeah. That pushed me to say, okay, let me get all of my Van Til material. Back then it was the CD-ROM, Eric Sigward's yeah, CD-ROM. Yeah, this, sure. this is way back. In the, and I read, abs made sure I read absolutely everything Van Til had written and then uh, wrote the dissertation, which now, uh, Eli, has uh, what you have in the book that, that's before you and others is a perfecting and absolute comprehensive rewriting of that volume. So that's how wow. my interest connects to the book that's right before you. See, I love those background stories. I love them because it's those little things that contribute to what people look, the people see the book and they're like, man, this is a great book. I want to like, um, you know, study this and pick it apart. But it's, it's those little beginnings that give birth to these big projects. And uh, it takes a lot of research to, to, to do those things. And so I really love that background uh, sort of stuff. That's really fascinating. Now, um, when I often hear discussions on Van Til's Trinitarian theology, there are a lot of people who misunderstand Van Til um, and claim that he holds to an illogical um, understanding of the Trinity in terms of which um, God is both one person and three persons. Um, and so I've often had people message me and say, hey, you know, what, what do you think Van Til meant by this? It doesn't sound like um, that's a logically coherent concept to hold. Uh, could you unpack for us Van Til's understanding of the one person and the three persons, since that seems to be a violation of the second law of logic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll put it in, in contrast. Gordon Clark uh, holds to a doctrine of the Trinity that's heterodox. And he's the one huh? who claimed that Van Til was being illogical. In hmm. the book, this is in like, I think, chapter five. I don't recall. Chapter four. Okay. This is chapter four. I remember my own book. Uh, in chapter four, <laughs> I, I situate Van Til's uh, doctrine in light of Boston personalism, Gordon Clark. Gordon Clark held that the principle of individuation in the Trinity is that each person is comprised of a discrete bundle of thoughts, an incommunicable bundle of thoughts. 
bundle thought bundle one is the father thought hmm. bundle two is the son thought bundle three is the holy spirit and that means there are discrete get this discrete and inaccessible bundles of thought within the trinity and then he goes on to say those personal thought bundles have to be distinguished from what he called mute essence so in order to salvage the personal thought bundles that are the father son and holy spirit okay he related them to what he called a mute essence an essence that isn't conscious the, the essence has no thought bundles can i can i ask something can i because i'm trying to make i'm trying to follow what you're saying and connect the dots with mute a mute essence is he then um suggesting that there is an abstract impersonal element of God, as opposed to God being an absolute person with no impersonality undergirding that. Is Precisely. That okay, you, so, Eli, okay. your your instincts are 100% right. Okay. He, he posits mute and unconscious substance wow. in order to make way logically for living thought bundles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, huh. yeah, I know that that's, but, but Gordon Clark, here's the, I want to say this charitably. Gordon yeah. Clark was a philosopher, not a theologian. Yes. Um, and so he was punching way above his weight class. It's like a, a lightweight punching up toward a heavyweight mm -hmm. and it's just not his thing. Um, he did okay. his best. That's not orthodox. It is uh, tritheism. Tritheism says there are separate self-conscious centers, incommunicable thought bundles in each person, mm -hmm. and that the, the, the unity is either love or purpose. Okay. Um, and so Clark, Clark trends in that direction. But Van Til, and I, I have this in the book, so I'll just economize the presentation in the book. Sure. All Van Til is doing when he says God is absolute personality, this is kind of a, a well-kept secret. Okay. But Ooh, uh, I've exposed it. it. Yeah, yeah. Here's the <laughs> okay. Mysterion is being open. No, I shouldn't do that. That's too much. But there is a kind of uh, uh, hidden secret here. All Van Til's doing is quoting and expounding Bavink. The absolute mm. personality language comes directly from Bavink's reformed dogmatics. Mm. And to put it to put it in a twofold form, when you're talking about is the essence of God absolute personality, Bavink says two things. Number one, God is self-sufficient self-conscious okay. and self-willing. In other words, all of God's acts are how many? Uh, oh. Here are the options. One, three, or potentially infinite. They're one. Right. There's one God. He acts in the unity of his being. Mm. And so that one God acts within the unity of his being. He's he's purposeful. He His decree is a decree that comes from one God. His create the creative works of God come from one God. The redemption uh, that that we know comes from one God. So there's a a fundamental baseline unity of God, whereby He decrees, creates, redeems, governs, and consummates as one living and true God. Bavink okay. says that is personal it's not mm. impersonal electricity doesn't do that gravity doesn't do that mm. god does that so so there's a there's a, a a fundamental personal dimension to his unity second point bovink says that that 
unity expresses itself in what Bavin calls a threefold differentiation that we call the eternal processions. Okay. Where God's love for himself, God's knowledge of himself, is expressed in terms of eternal self-differentiation where the Father generates the Son and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And there is this threefold subsistent differentiation within the one undivided personal being and unity of God. So there's one personal purposeful God, mm -hmm. but there's a threefold subsistence within that one purposeful. So, so in that sense, it's not a contradiction once you explain and qualify the statement that God is one person and three persons. And so that language, although it can be confusing, we want to emphasize that there is no impersonality, no impersonal context that undergirds the three persons as we describe well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Brother, that's a perfect segue. Let me add my third point, because okay. right? that's bobbing. So okay. there's one self-purposing, self-determining God. Right. That one I mean, God exists in three distinct subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God without remainder. Each subsists entirely as that uh, undivided essence. Then Van Til, when he talks about absolute person, he uses it synonymously with absolute personality and says within the absolute personality of God, there are three personal subsistences. Mm. And so... So the, the people who think Van Til is making some equivocation like person uh, is, is not equivocating, like person is used in exactly and exhaustively the same sense, have not understood Bavink and have not understood the fact that there are not four, but only three incommunicable personal properties within what? the being of the one absolutely personal God. Mm. So, so absolute personality is not an abstract conception, but a tri-personal conception. Okay. Um, and, and so is the father God? Yes. Is the son God? Yes. Is the Holy spirit God? Yes. Are there three minds separately conceived? No. Are there three wills separately conceived? Uh, no, there is one mind, one will, one God, yet there are three distinct persons who are, and that copulative verb deserves all the emphasis, who are that one God. Hmm. And, and right there, Van Til plants the flag of what I'm going to call, I'm going to call it this, the Augustinian, creedal, Calvinistic, confessional, Bossian, Vantillian, Old Princeton, Old Amsterdam flag of mystery. That's got to be on a t-shirt or something. That's got to be there. We got to get one going. We got t-shirts coming from Reform. But but it's mystery. See, and, and so it's not a syllogism to be solved. Okay. It's not to say that there are contradictions. It's to say that there are ineffably sublime, absolutely and eternally impenetrable mysteries to this God who is three and one and one and three in whom there is absolutely no vestige of impersonality. And let me come back to Gordon Clark. I'm sorry to do this because I know some people still love him. And I think he was a fine fellow. He and Van Til were friends, but yes. there are not three separate thought bundles and there's not a mute essence. Okay. That's what you get when you try to solve 
this mystery mm. rather than worship this mysterious mm. triune God. That is awesome. I, I, that's awesome. I have some people in the comments here. I need to read his book. <laughs> yes, you do. You gotta go to check it out. Well, it's, uh, all, yeah. it's, it's there in a more orderly way. I'm not sure. quite as orderly right now, sure. you know, of course, but no, you're doing, you're doing a, you're doing a great job. Now let's throw, let's throw a monkey wrench in here. Uh, we do a lot of apologetics here. My channel is called revealed apologetics, which is yes, my fancy yes. way of referring to presuppositional apologetics. Amen. That's beautiful. Um, but um, what happens then? So you have the Trinity, as you've just defined, uh, you know, his absolute personality, uh, three subsistence. What happens now when you have the hypostatic union and the will of the man Christ Jesus, uh, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, you know, if it be if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, uh, but not my will, but your will. How do we understand the one will of the triune God and the um, hypostatic union? Uh, the person of Christ in which there is both human and divine natures, which seems at times the human nature uh, is in conflict with the divine nature, which appears that way. How would we explain that? Because I know that often comes up in apologetical context when people challenge the coherency of uh, Jesus Christ being both God and, and man. Yeah, uh, several things to remember. I'm going to give you the embryonic thumbnail version here. Okay. Uh, but And I will reference you to this. Camden Busey and I, about a month ago, uh, did a, a video. I'm so old fashioned, did a podcast. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> Had our pictures taken. No, 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 I tell, no, no you know, I, I'm terrible. Uh, this white has been earned. The white You're not earned. that old. You no. look like a youngish older guy. I'm a young, I am. That, that's a good way of putting it. I'm a youngish <laughs> older guy with an emphasis on the youngish and the oldest. Anyway. Right. Um, but, but, um, we did something on this about a month ago. So your listeners, if they're so inclined, can look at the deeper Protestant conception of the person of Christ. I'm going to give you a, a, a modified version of that. I also had an essay in the Sinclair Ferguson Festschrift on this topic, okay. but I didn't talk about the hypostatic union. Here okay. it is in a nutshell. The locus of unity within the God-man is the divine person. Jesus is not a divine human person. He's a divine person. Mm. And the humanity of Jesus subsists in the in the person that is divine. That's an in hypostatic conception of the person of Jesus. The humanity never exists apart from union in the person of the logos. It's an hypostatic in that this second point. The, the, the humanity of Jesus is not a person in itself, but it's personalized in union with the person of the Logos. So in and on hypostatic Christology is absolutely critical to recognize that Jesus is and remains a divine person. Second point, your heart is Voss, and I don't have it with me. Uh, oh, I do. I do. Pardon me. Pardon me for leaning back. But uh, volume three of Voss's mm. Reformed Dogmatics, okay. and by the way, don't I don't want to offend anyone. Don't get the one volume. Get the five. Get the five volumes. <laughs> volume three. See, I've even got my library right Is there. Is the one volume abridged? There's like stuff left no, out? No, it's not abridged, but it's got flypaper instead of book paper in it. Okay. I mean, I go catch okay. flies with that thing. It's, it's right. so thin. I'm not diminishing the people who publish I like it. Thick I like thick pages. Uh, yeah, I do like I, thick pages. I, I like to feel like the this, books like I'm this reading. new edition here. 
It's got good pages. The Bonson book, Mantle's Apologetics, got nice thick pages. You can write notes in it. I, I, yeah. I, I'll only reference people to the old, unabridged, unedited, non-commented versions of Van Til's works. Those are the pure things. Okay. Uh, the non-mutualized versions. But anyway, um, okay. but, but, but just remember, he's, 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 a, he's a purist. But um, uh, Van Til. But um, Voss says, point two, that the person of the Logos, this is so important to remember, cannot be, this is a quote from volume three, cannot be changed or eradicated mm. in the hypostatic union. So in the hypostatic union, the person of the Logos, the eternal person, does not change in the new relation to the human nature. And you're asking yourself, well, that sounds weird. No, it's simply the logic of the new relation to creation. In this volume, which I strongly suggest you get, uh, volume one, Theology Proper, uh, pages 178 okay. and following, Voss talks about the new relation of creation, and here's what he says, following Bobby. He says that when God personally condescends to create, the relation between the creator and the creature changes. The creature in the relation changes, but the, and this is key, brother, okay. but the essence and the persons of the triune God remains living and immutable and unchanged in that new relation. So it's the old meatloaf song. Two out of three, ain't bad. the 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 relation changes, the creature changes, but meatloaf. the triune God. Yeah, that's back in the day. Isn't like, that the guy? I I would do anything. Is that the guy? Yeah, but before that, it was <laughs> don't feel <laughs> bad because two out of three ain't bad. Bad out of hell, baby. It's one of the best concept albums that in the history is, of rock. That is awesome. Um, it's not Pink Floyd variety like Dark Side of the Moon, but it's good. Okay. But, right. but the point is this. Always remember this. There are two but not three changes. The creature changes. The relation changes. The immutable persons of the Trinity do not change in the new relation to creation. Hmm. That logic is maintained in the hypostatic union. Okay. The eternal son of God assumes a new, uh, a true humanity to himself. And in that assumption, what changes? The humanity changes. It did not once exist. Now it exists. The relation changes. It was not once related to the, to the person, the son, but it now is. But the immutable and living person of the son of God does not change. That's right. So we predicate of him change according to what? Human nature? Unchanging according to divine nature, omniscient according to what divine nature, limited knowledge according to human nature, but the 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 locus of all of these predications for change is the human nature permanently and personally united to the logos, mm. and so uh, really the the best formula I know how to to give it, and and this is just pure Voss. Vantilla affirms this, Bavin confirms it. It's standard Chalcedonian orthodoxy, but sure. but these Reformed theologians really picked up on it. Is that the immutable person does not change in the assumption of a true, changing, finite, developmental human nature, hmm. and the predications we make of his person, we make them improperly with reference to his humanity, properly with reference to his deity, uh, but but. As goes the logic of the new relation to creation, so goes the logic of the assumption of a human nature. The only difference is there's an intensification of the mystery when it comes to the incarnation. 
It's a more mm. intense version of the mystery, but it's the same mystery. And I'll say this fourth, third point, I guess this third point, um, all forms of modern Bardian, Schleiermachian, covenantal, open theist, dipolar theist, process versions of the incarnation, all of them, you have to grant this, uh, you have to appreciate this, sure. all of them ascribe change to the person simpliciter. Mm. And what it introduces, Eli, and this is a, this is a pernicious error, and as time goes on, more and more people will see this. I've been pointing out for several years, and, and a few others have. Um, you can spot um, heterodoxy a mile away in this, that they will say that the essence does not change, but the persons do. Now, what's mm. so wrong with that? Well, if the person, what is classic? I'm sorry, brother. I, I don't want to go too long here. But no what is the classical definition of a person? A subsistence within the Godhead. Mm. Trinitarian persons are defined as subsisting only as the whole and undivided essence in their works ad intra and in their works ad extra. If the essence, if the person is the essence, and the essence does not change. Brother, the persons don't change. Hmm. But there's a, I call it dialectical uh, conceptions of Trinity that shared by Bart, the covenantal view, the uh -huh. dipolar view, that the essence is immutable, but the persons generate in free knowledge, generate in creation, generate in revelation, these new dynamic mutable properties by which they change, they develop, they're ignorant, they grow. And it's right there that you should recognize that you're talking about a concept of person as something other than a subsistence of the divine essence. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a different conception of Trinitarian personality, and it is rife, ranging from modernist to so-called biblicist reformed to sure. open theists to um, to to just your your kind of post-conservative evangelical and post-liberal world out there. It really has taken traction in the mid twentieth up to now, middling toward the sure. mid twenty-first century. Hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much. This is awesome content. I mean, this is definitely something folks can go back and listen to and pick apart and really get a yeah. lot from what you're saying. Cause I like how you answered in layered ways. Cause it can kind of take us through the journey of like the flow of your thought and what you're trying to say. So I do appreciate that. Now we are at the top of the hour and I would like to take the time to go through some audience questions if that's okay. We have a couple of questions if you don't mind taking some of them. Let's do, let's do a couple. Yes. Okay. Please. Yeah. All right. So, um, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. What that was, was that? What, what were that you kidding about? I, I said, time's up. That, that was, all right. So, so Viet Mai says, uh, hi, Dr. Tipton. If each person of the Godhead fully coincides with the divine essence and tri-personality is an attribute in the divine essence, why do we not say that each person in the Godhead is also tri-personal? Thank you. Sure. The verb there coincides is infelicitous. Uh, it to for two things to coincide, they have to be separate, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm on a football field, I used to play football, 
if I am uh, lined up on defense and running backs on offense, and he's going to run to point A, I'm going to coincide with him at point A. Mm. But we're separate. Coincidence entails separation. So if you take out that verb coincides and you say, Dr. Tipton, if each person of the Godhead subsists Mm. as, not coincides with, not as separate from and then touches, but subsists as, that is, is entirely and without remainder the divine essence. If you put it that way, then it's quite clear that tripersonality requires monotheism. That each person, the Father is without remainder God. The Son is without remainder God. The Spirit is without remainder God. Not because they coincide as extrinsic and then meeting in the middle somewhere. That would be like some third thing. Because if I hit the guy who's running with the football, we meet in a third place where we we didn't start, right? That third place is a univocal tertium quid where I hopefully level him. And he, maybe he fumbles. Maybe I pick it up and run for a touchdown, but that's that's irrelevant. There's a there's a a separation of the two that closes in a common place, a third thing. That is a conception that's alien to Trinitarian Orthodoxy. So if we substitute it with subsists entirely as the divine essence, then that the question is resolved because each person is the full an undivided essence of God, yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father and the Son. Mm. There are distinguishing, discriminating personal properties and three subsistent relations to that undivided one essence that doesn't diminish or partition that essence as each person is, unqualifiedly, the whole of it. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. We'll kind of go through these quickly. We'll see if we can get, there's some really good ones. I think that people would really enjoy to hear your thoughts, but uh, we'll see if we can move through these quickly here. Uh, Richard Cox asks, do you have any thoughts on Ligonier's, especially Dr. Matheson's criticisms of Van Til and his theology's impact on the doctrine of God? Yeah. Matheson is a refurbishing of some old critiques of the De Boers. I mentioned him in a footnote. Uh, It's recycled. It's not fresh. It's not creative. So it's really not worthy of careful scholarly attention because it's a recycling of the De Boers, which Carlton Wynn, Camden Busey, and I have already dealt with in the Van Til group. I do some work on critically in terms of a footnote in the book. But if you want to get the the real Van Til, uh, Matheson and the De Boers should be put aside and you should just read Van Til, go to the book, look at what he says and recognize that he is the um, embodiment and integration of the classically reformed continental Dutch and English Puritan tradition. And um, if Matheson would turn his attention to primary sources rather than the recycled stuff of the De Boers who were philosophers, not really good theologians in the first place, his, his understanding of Van Til would be much better. Hmm, excellent. Thank you so much for that. Samuel uh, Haupt, uh, I hope I said that right. Um, how would Dr. Dip- Tipton address John 5, especially verse 26? And we could turn there if you don't know it off the top of your head. But I know it off the top of my head. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, since it seems to contradict autotheos, Calvin applies the text to the economy, but limits it to that in a rather unconvincing manner. Uh, first, in an unconvincing manner, you just bracket and get rid of. It applies to the economy. Autotheos does not apply to the economy. It applies to ontology. Therefore, 
Uh, Calvin will appeal to other texts such as Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the apogasma testoxes, the active radiation of the essence. Uh, Colossians 1.15, he is the eternal ekon uh, to theu, the image of the invisible God. He is the morphe to theu, to uh, Philippians 2.6. Um, he is the um, the the pleroma, one night, Colossians 1.19 and um, Colossians 2.9 of the divine essence, of the divine substance. And here's the key for Calvin. The manner in which the Son possesses the divine essence is not passive and receptive, but active. Why? Because God is simple. Hmm. Each person is the active essence of God. Each person is fully the essence of God. And to posit that the Father is entirely generative of the essence and the Son is entirely receptive of the essence compromises the simplicity of God. Mm -hmm. So Calvin says it it deals with the economy. I agree with him. Um, you might not be convinced of it, but it wouldn't therefore be an applicable proof text, and it wouldn't address the more convincing and powerful proof texts that talk about the Son as the fullness and entirety and active effulgence. I'll turn this uh, person, Samuel Haupt, turn him to Voss's um, teaching of the Epistle of the Hebrews, where he addresses Abalgasma and gives a series of arguments for its active sense, which means the Son is not a bare passive reflection of the essence, but the active radiance of that essence, which is what? Autotheon. And it deals with the mm. economy not uh, deals with ontology not the economy excellent thank you so much for that question samuel now you address you addressed this question before but maybe a quick thumbnail because it, it keeps coming but i'm going to make this as a separate uh, a separate video because i know people were asking but um why don't you in brief because uh, i know you answered this why can't an eastern orthodox person be a consistent presuppositionalist maybe just a quick summary again the eastern orthodox um and I, i'm thinking particularly if you read uh, the work of someone like Losky on the uh, beatific vision or um, Zazulus on the um, being as communion. I've read a book by Reed on the essence energies distinction. Here's the best way to put it. The essence energies distinction posits that God in his essence is modally distinct from God in his energies, that there are qualities that you find in and express through the energies that are distinguished from the essence of God. And the essence, therefore, is God not relating to creation. Energies are the are the means by which God relates to creation. And I'm not giving an exhaustive answer because you asked me to keep it yeah, short. So I'm not right, doing right. my typical layered thing, I'm trying to keep it short. So, so that the point is that Eastern Orthodox theology, as I've seen it, posits the energies as a tertium quid a place where God and the creature meet and participate. The energies facilitate the meeting between the God and the between God and the creature in a manner similar to the way Bart's third time is the place where God and man come together and participate in a common event. So I would say that that the reason why people get kind of stuck on this is that you can you can see some similarities between Bart's tertium which is God's time for us, um, Oliphant's tertium, which is covenantal properties, Frame's tertium, which is God's second mode of existence, or the Eastern Orthodox tertium, which is energies, 
in which the creature participates. Creatures participate in energies and not essence. So the essence is the coming together of the creator and the creature in a tertium that violates the logic of this creator-creature distinction and relation that Van Til maintains. There is no tertium, no third thing in which God and man participate in order to relate. The Eastern Orthodox tradition, therefore, shares a family resemblance to these forms of mutualism and this positing of a tertium that I've, I've cited in various expressions of the Western tradition. Excellent. Thank you so much. I, again, I cannot, I cannot, I'm not exaggerating. This question comes up all the time. So I, I very much appreciate it. Hey, just real quickly. Um, I've talked about the deeper modernist conception. I've talked about the deeper Catholic conception. I've talked about the deeper Protestant conception. And in, in, if I live another five years, I'm going to write a volume on the deeper um, Orthodox EO conception nice. and, okay. and, and, and try to differentiate all four views of the God-world relation and show that it's only the deeper Protestant conception that avoids some species of mutualism, some tertium. So, so we need yeah. to pray that you don't die in the next five years so that it'll... <laughs> I, I, for my kids and wife's sake, pray for like 30. Hey, uh, I have I have good Pentecostal friends who are really good prayer warriors, so we'll make sure... Get going, brother, because I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> As I, as I as I feel every day, daylight's a waste, and I've got to keep working here. But uh, that's thanks, right. thanks. That's right. Well, um, we have almost 50 viewers in the live chat right now, people asking a bunch of questions, but I want to respect your time. Uh, is it okay if we go to two more questions, and then we'll Let's wrap things two up? two more, and then we tap. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. So TJ Brown says, concerning the Trinity, why three? Could it be that when two are communicating, there must be a third as the divine witness of the two and require a fourth? Would do would is grammatically incorrect. Would to undermine the third, and so there can only be three, or it would be denying the perfection of the three. I'm probably way wrong, but was thinking about why three during a podcast in the past. Sorry if this distracts from the discussion. God bless you all. Uh, well, let, 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 let me put it this way: our, our theology, for better or for worse, is not a speculative one. Okay. Um, I have not sat in my study and tried to out Hegel Hegel and engage in abstract philosophical Hegel, speculation Hegel, like about the inner essence of uh, eternal and temporal reality. But we live by revelation, and the scriptures are our principium for our theology. They're the norm, the norming norm for the creeds and confessions. Mm -hmm. And the scriptures just most basically reveal this. I'm just going to put it super basically. There is one living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no other, and all others are an idol. <laughs> I mean, that's the most basic way I, I know how to put it. So if you ever let yourself get unhinged, hey, wait, what's this text? What's this podcast called? Revealed apologetics rests on what? Revealed theology. So right. it's the fact that it's a revealed theology and a confession. Let me let me speak directly to this brother, uh, T.J. Brown. Uh, T.J., uh, so I'm speaking directly to you. The reason why you believe in the Trinity at one level is that only Jesus Christ has called to you through his word, made himself known to you by his spirit, atoned for your sins by his death, been raised to new life for your justification, and summoned you effectually into union and communion with himself so that you confess that his father, 
is the father of heaven and earth and that there is no son but Jesus and that he has poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. So brother, you keep worshiping and you reject that rationalism that's in the back of your mind with the revelation of the self-contained ontological trinity and the Christ of scripture who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm. If I can just provide some hypothetical context where I think this question is coming from, on this channel, Lane, we talk a lot about the transcendental argument and the necessity of the ontological trinity to ground the one and the many. Um, and of course, these are preconditions for predication and all on all these other sorts of things. As that's I'm sure. Bonson. That's Bonson, baby. I'm hearing that, it. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think when we argue, for example, the triune God provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. People will often talk about the triune God as a hypothetical hypothesis why must he be three? Why can't he be four? But your answer is saying he's three because we are not talking of God as a hypothetical hypothesis. We're talking about God as the one who has in fact revealed himself as triune. And so yep. that's why he must be three is because that's how he's revealed himself to us. To, to come full circle on Bonson. Bonson mm. himself told me to do this. Okay. The wagon is worldview. The horse is the trinity. And, and, and your worldview is pulled by that Trinitarian horse, as it were. Mm. And so you're, 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 you're never to posit that there is some intelligible realm of universals in particular, some kind of realist realm. And then you're in search of the most coherent worldview. That's actually that view right there is Clarkian coherentism, where mm. you have a set of experiences and laws. And then you test those experiences and laws against, um, give me a second, um, um, against axiom systems, systems that have axioms. And Gordon Clark says Christianity has the most axioms that render experience coherent. So if you're not really careful, if you put your worldview cart before the Trinitarian horse and you reverse that order, you can very quickly become a rationalist and be led to say, well, look, if if, if, if the, the, this worldview renders things intelligible, maybe I can worship a pantheon of gods. Maybe I could worship Zeus. Maybe I could pray to Thor, Dwight from the office, you know, but, but, uh, you know, but, but, but if you, if you recognize the order and proportion of worldview it is a function of the revelation of the self-contained triune god and grows out of a distinct theology of image and covenant enabled by that trinitarian theology hmm. excellent excellent all right well thank you so much for that um we're going to cut this short i know we said two more but i i, I feel bad we've gone an hour and 10 minutes so uh, well, we'll just give us we'll, one last more let's do one last one more uh, okay all right i appreciate uh, it uh, okay. uh, my heart's always open brother okay well patrick Even asked flesh this is willing, the heart is the spirits the spirits willing the flesh <laughs> is, right. is weakening but we got it that's right so patrick asks uh what do you think about divine temporality advocates of this view claim that if god were timeless the incarnation and creation would be impossible. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's a there's a a, a thesis out there. I think I, I showed this earlier, but uh, yes. this this thesis, God with us, where the um, the timelessness and eternity of God is like an impediment or a barrier that has to be overcome, so that in order for God to relate to creation, 
He has to generate a set of properties. They're called covenantal or um, they could be called other things, but they're called covenantal. They're accidental, if you use more mm -hmm. classical language. Yes. Accidental properties that facilitate the relation of the eternal and immutable God to the temporal and mutable creature. And it's said that those properties resolve that question that God is eternal in himself, but when he knows in his free knowledge the actual world, he generates new properties of, of before and after noesis. He mm. enters into time, as Frame would say, in a new mode of existence, or he sure. assumes covenant and wills covenantal properties, as Oliphant would say. Yeah. Here's, the, here's the problem with that. There are two. Uh, two main ones. There are like a hundred that I could talk about, but I, I right. don't want to do the full layered thing. Just to, to, <laughs> I'll do a, I'll do like a quick bisection layered answer. Okay. Uh, point one is that requires an infinite regress of new properties. Hmm. If if in order for God to relate to what is temporal, He has to assume properties that enable the relation to the temporal, and those properties are themselves temporal. He has to assume a new set of properties to relate to the temporal properties that enable the relation to time. So it's an infinite regress. There's just no end to the multiplying of new mutable interactive properties that God mm -hmm. needs to relate to time. Yeah. Uh, the second one is, uh, I think, the most pro uh, a more profound one. Um, and I'll, I'll just put it this way. And I, and I, I struggle for terms sometimes, uh, sure. Eli, but this is the best way I know how to put it. Our reformed, our Augustinian Calvinist reformed Vantilian tradition affirms an unqualified doctrine of immutability, simplicity, impassibility, and omniscience. God in his revelation does not change. Two quick ones. Covenantally, he says to his people, Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, in covenant with you, do not change. Not even a little bit. I know every I know where you are. I know everything about you. I ordain everything about you. I'm purely actual. I'm living and I'm immutable. And because of that, you have religious hope. Hmm. You see, you will not be consumed. But it, what's no. the implication? If I change just a little bit, all bets are off. You're on your own. In, in the words of Prince, <laughs> right. right? Remember Prince? Uh, in, in this life, you're on your own. <laughs> so anyway, you, you, it's Prince theology if God is not. Um, unqualifiedly mutable. Second, and, and Bavink and Ventil quote these. This is why I'm giving it to you. Sure. Um, James 1.17, the father of heavenly lights, in his acts odd extra, in his giving of every good and perfect gift, does not change like shifting shadows. Hmm. He's immutable. He's dynamic. He's living. He's self-contained. He's simple. He's impassable in his acts that fall in time. And so this idea that God has to somehow become temporal in order to relate to creation is the is the reason why so many rationalists posit, well, he's got to change. Well, here's the to, to take it to the incarnation. OK, third level to the third level answer to take it to the incarnation, the incarnation classically and reformed in terms of creedal and, and reformed confessional theology. Please hear this is that the eternal and immutable son of God assumed to himself a temporal and mutable human nature, hmm. right? That's Chalcedon. That's, that's reformed theology. That is in Westminster confession eight 
It is enshrined in Bavink, in Voss, in Hodge, in Van Til. It is Chalcedonian orthodoxy. The eternal and immutable son of God assumed to himself a temporal and mutable human nature. But if you posit that God changes in his free knowledge to become temporal, that God changes in the work of creation to become temporal, that God changes in the event of the hypostatic union. You have a creature assuming a creaturely nature. You mm -hmm. have a temporal and mutable person assuming a temporal and mutable nature, and you no longer have God in the flesh. If you affirm, I'm sorry to pound, but if you if you <laughs> affirm a doctrine of divine temporality where God mutates, changes, limits, transforms himself to become temporal, God with us doesn't exist mm. because there is no immutable self-contained eternal person assuming human nature. There's a creature assuming a creature and it compiles the idolatry. Mm. So you can't worship such a construction. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just do this because I'm, I'm, I was an English major. That's a, that is a rough beast slouching toward Bethlehem to be born. Uh, in the words of T.S., uh, in the words of uh, William Butler Yeats, it's a monstrosity. It's it's an an idolatrous conception. So we've got to remember that the eternal, living, immutable Son of God assumes a temporal and um, mutable human nature, and that is God with us. Anything else is an idol. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Oh my goodness. Uh, there are so many questions and I, someone asked a question and, and maybe I'll take a shot at it and we'll wrap things up. Cause I, I, it's a question towards me. Um, okay. and maybe, you could, maybe you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong, but Brenda says if time is a succession of events and thoughts are a succession of mental events, does God have thoughts? How is that possible if he's outside of time? It is my understanding that God does not think in a discursive fashion, one thought after another, rather he has all knowledge laid bare and kind of one fell swoop of, of intuition. Um, am I, am I correct along those lines that he doesn't think one thought after the other, like we do. Brother, you're, you are so right. This volume posits though, that in his free knowledge, uh, God generates or assumes to himself a temporal discursive incremental and ignorant covenantal mind by which he comes progressively to know things. But in the Orthodox tradition of Chalcedon, Westminster Confession, and the Reformed tradition, Eli, you are 100% right about the knowledge of God. It is as immutable and simple as his being. Mm, excellent. Lane, I have to tell you, I have interviewed uh, some of the top scholars, Reformed uh, folks as well, and I have to say, this has been my favorite discussion so far uh, oh, brother. well it's been a lot and you. i love your love for vantillian theology for the bible and just the energy with which you um uh with which you kind of explain your position thank you so much for giving me one hour and 18 minutes of your time. It is greatly appreciated. It, it was a delightful one in 18, and I look forward to future opportunities, brother. Thanks for having me on. I deeply appreciate it. Keep up the wonderful work and blessings on your ministry, brother.
Absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening and uh, sending in your questions. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, it would do me a great uh, a great benefit if you went on iTunes and wrote a nice review. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And um, thank you so much. I really appreciate my listeners. And until next time, I have a big announcement coming up. I'll let you guys know when things are in order, but uh, it's exciting. So until next time, take care and God bless. Bye-bye.